with us this morning. Another welcome to you. My name is Jed Brown. I'm the associate pastor here. Pastor Steve will be back next week, Lord willing. Um, I also bring all of us greetings from the elders and the congregations of two churches, the Evangelical Free Church Community of Wendelstein, Germany, I think I pronounced that right, near Nuremberg, um, where our previous members and our previous church secretary, uh, Kim Lotz and her husband, Benno, now attend. Um, is there a picture? Is there? Maybe. Uh, it doesn't matter, Kevin. That's okay. Um, and uh, they're in the States, by the way. Kim and Benno are. But I think they're in San Francisco. So if you know them and want to contact them, they're only an hour away instead of nine now. But, uh, and I also bring you greetings from Resurrection Church of ivano Frankivsk, Ukraine, pastored by Oleg Kalin, where um, Oleg is... Uh, the senior pastor there, and our church supports Oleg and his school. Um, Ivano Frankivsk is in western Ukraine near Poland and Romania, and uh, I was just teaching in that school last week, and it was good to see dear brothers and sisters there and to see the challenges that, that they face um, and how God is amply and richly providing for them um, there in Ukraine and in Germany. But it's also good to be home um, with all of you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, it is good to be home. And as I, as I say that and, and pray that, I, I realize that there's an error in that of sorts, that this is not my home. This is not our home. One day we will feast with you in the house of Zion. That is our home. And so you've reserved for all of us who've trusted in you a home that is imperishable. As Bill just prayed, um, three three trillion millennia from now, we will, we will in no way think of Utah as our home. You are our home, Lord Jesus. The new heavens and the new earth are, are already our home. As your word says in Hebrews 12, we have already come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to your heavenly Jerusalem. It's as good as done because of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. One day we will feast in the house of Zion. And we, many of us, just had a massive feast, and our bellies are full. And there is probably for many of us a bit of a disconnect, maybe a yawn as we sing that song. There is a part of us that longs for that day, longs for that day, and there is a part of us that yawns at it. So I pray that you would meet us now, that you would attend to our souls by sending your spirit to please speak through your word. Please use the, the, the words that I will say, but please cause your word to sink deep. The passage that we will look at this morning, you, you call your word imperishable. So I pray on, on that basis, would you do a work here today that is imperishable, that will echo into eternity, 
I don't pray that because I think I've done something special with the words that are on these laser-printed sheets of paper. I, I pray that on the basis of, of you, of your power to work, and on the imperishable living power of your word. So I pray, would you meet us now? Would you do a, an imperishable, eternal work in us? Do this because it's your nature to do this. Because it is, it is in your lavish and generous character to do such a thing. Right here, right now, in a little gymnasium in Utah. You are about such work. So would you do this? Not because we deserve it, but because you are merciful. Full of steadfast love to your children. So we look to you now as we look to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We will focus mainly on verses 13 through 19 this morning, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. And if your Bible has paragraph headings, <clears throat> at least the ESV does well in its divisions. The first two verses are a greeting where Peter gives the entire gospel in miniature in just two verses. Then in uh, verses 3 through 12, he enlarges on the gospel story. Then in verses 13 through 29, he, 25, he gives us the so what, the to do. This is always how the gospel works. First, God did, God is doing, God will do. And then uh, the so what, the to do. Only then, after we see what God has done, do we get the should. Always in this order. If we mess with the order, we mess with the gospel. So, so let's read 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little, time, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. Peter writes this letter because he sees a threat a threat to the suffering churches of his day and to us. It is the greatest threat that you and I will ever face. And he writes so that we would not just be protected from this threat, but that we would overcome it, that we would transcend it. It's found in chapter 1, verse 14, the, the possibility that we who have come to know God would be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, that the Christians in Turkey of, of his own day and the Christians of Ephri would be conformed, shaped, molded into the likeness, not of our Heavenly Father, but of the lusts and the strong desires that they and, and we had before we were saved, before God called us. Just as a sculpture, a sculptor, excuse me, hammers away at a rock or a stone to produce a statue, a likeness of someone, Peter sees a great threat that the, the hammering of the numerous trials and sufferings of life would produce a finished likeness that, that doesn't look like our Father, the one who calls us to this salvation. I'm, I'm, I'm not really a sculptor, but I, I know that from talking to sculptors that a lot of the sculpting involves following the rock, that the existing consistency of the stone drives the finished product, determines whether the sculptor will produce a man or an animal or what. In the same way, 
Peter does not see the hammering as the threat to us. It's the nature of the stone that's the issue. That's the threat. Under the hammering of trials and suffering and and living as an exile in this world, whatever likeness is produced depends on the nature, on the character of the stone being hammered. So the danger is that though we have been called by God, we are not yet glorified. We we still have a flesh that is filled with these, these ignorant passions. And our flesh loves, verse 18, futile ways. Wasteful, nothing ways. A way of living that is simply a, a loss. The danger is that in our trials, we would, we would slink and drift and slough our way back to this flesh. It's, it's always there waiting for us with open arms, waiting for us. It always, wait for, always waits for us, and the result is that the, the trials of this life, the trials that we go through will have been wasted. We will all go through trials. That is not the question. The world is full of murderous emperors, bad bosses, unbelieving husbands, fiery suffering, and just the general rejection by the world because we're refugees and we await a real home and the world rejects refugees. These are not our real threats, not terrorism, not ISIS, not an imperial presidency, not nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran. These are not our real threats. Every one of us will die. What we generally think of threats is just a question of how. Whether by illness or accident or terrorism, we will all die. 50,000 years from now, it will not matter how we died. What will matter is how we lived, Peter is telling us. The question will be, verse 7, the tested genuineness of our faith. And the tested genuineness of our faith is revealed, Peter says, by whether we lived a holy life. We demonstrate that we are called by a holy Father by bearing a growing likeness to Him under the trials of life. Children look like their daddies. And that likeness is revealed often through suffering. So our greatest threat is that which threatens this this genuine faith and this this growing holiness. So Peter sees our enemy as as a triune, unholy trinity of the devil and the world, which both find an all too willing accomplice in our own flesh and the passions of our former ignorance. And by this phrase, this is, and this is really important. What, what Peter is drilling down to here is not just our, our sin nature in general, but uh, he, he's boring into what some theologians call our characteristic flesh. What that means is the, the sins that you just do for no reason, the mud puddles you always go back to, whatever it is. We all have this, a certain temperament and a certain bent to sin. And, you know, when you see this in other people, it it looks so silly. Why does that person keep doing that? Well, that's because that's their bent. And your particular characteristic flesh looks really silly to them (laughs) because it's all different. We're all different. But it is this deep, hardwired, seemingly automatic flesh that, that, that Peter sees as our greatest threat. 
And in this chapter, he traces out for us three paths for transcending it, for overcoming it, and for producing this this holiness that, that really does bear a likeness to the Father down deep. Again, not, not just a, a holiness that, that neatly lines up against other people's characteristic flesh, but, but a holiness down deep in, in the places where we just do it, the places that seem most impossible to change. That's what Peter's after here. That's what God, by His grace, is after. And in this, in this chapter, he is after a holiness which, in, in verse 15, involves all our conduct, how we eat, how we pay our taxes, how we feel about others, our bedroom behavior, our anxiety, how we eat, how we spend, all our conduct, especially the areas that seem most intractable to us, the things that seem most impossible. And therefore, he gets all the glory when he changes it. He gets all the glory because he is seen most clearly to be the one who did it all. So Peter doesn't give us every detail here about how this works. Um, The rest of the letter fleshes the, the first chapter out, fleshes that out in many of the important arenas of life. But Peter is giving us here general paths that we must all follow. We must all follow if we are to grow in this holiness. So let's look at them, these three. And they're, they're all building up to this main point this morning. The main point is this. Jesus was raised to bring us a future inheritance which serves as the object of holy, holiness-inducing hope and faith today. Read this again. Jesus was raised to bring us a future inheritance which serves as the object of holiness-inducing hope and faith today. Hope and faith drive holiness. But God does not just tell us, get hope, get faith. He gives us a story and facts in order to fill out that hope and faith. So again, there are three paths that that Peter lays out for us here, and the first one is this. Adopt the storyline that God has saved you into. Adopt the storyline that God has saved you into. I get this from the the one word, therefore, in verse 13. All the to-dos that follow from this point are direct consequences, entailments of the truths he gives us in verses 3 through 12. It's the gospel, but it's the gospel in the form of a storyline. Verse 3, we have a father who is to be blessed Because he has moved towards us in the form of his son. He was motivated by his own mercy, not not by anything that we had done. But more than mercy, we, we see that God himself was motivated by joy. His own joy in us and our joy in him. But look at Peter's focus here. The 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 cross is briefly alluded to in verse two. But here in verse three, it's the resurrection of Jesus that Peter focuses on. Jesus has been raised from the dead and we have been united to him. And thus we too will live in this resurrection life. Therefore, God holds out for us an inheritance, verse 4, a reward, an undeserved gift, a lavish grace. This inheritance is Jesus and it is all that comes from life with Jesus. So we don't know all that this inheritance is. 
But we do know a few things. He gives us three words here. We know that it's imperishable. It will wait for you and I. And it is sure. It is sure and it will not go away. It will not perish any more than Jesus Christ raised from the dead can perish now. It is sure. It is undefiled. It is undefiled. Unlike when we try to get soul-satisfying pleasure and, and satisfaction from the things of this world, and then in doing so, they become defiled. They become stained. They leave us stained. They leave us feeling guilty or thirsty, only wanting more. This, this inheritance will always satisfy, and it will never leave us feeling that way, feeling guilty, stained, or thirsty. Only happy and content, full of joy. And it is unfading. Unlike those, those, those perfect, seemingly perfect moments in this life, which, you know, if you want to hold on to them, it's like trying to catch a goldfinch, by a, a passing goldfinch by the wing. They pass so fleetingly. But the glory of this inheritance will never fade. We will exult in it and in God forever. Whatever it is, it will never fade. So the story begins with God sovereignly causing us to be born again into a new family, with a new father, into a new life in the resurrection of Jesus. And the story ends, or, or really just begins, with his resurrection, or with his, his coming and bringing us this lavish inheritance. So now, in the middle, God keeps this inheritance for us. He loves us. He's our Father, and he's keeping this grace for us right now. He keeps this inheritance for us, and he is keeping us, verse 5, for the inheritance. <laughs> he wants us to have this inheritance more than we want it. So he keeps us for it. And he is keeping us for it by producing in us a deeper and deeper faith. We endure for, to the inheritance by faith. So he works to produce faith in us, but a future faith, a, a joyful sight of what he is going to do in the future. A joyful sight of this reward. It is this future faith that moves us to endurance. So then, since faith is the means by which God keeps us for that day, God works everything now, including and especially trials, but everything to build and reveal this faith, verses 6 and 7. This is why the tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, because the tested genuineness of our faith is the very thing that leads us to this imperishable inheritance. And Peter adds one more flourish in verses 10 through 12. What a great privilege it is now, Christian, to live at this point in history, this side of the cross, to be the recipient of all of, these new, new, all of this news, things in which prophets long to, to, to see the outcome of, things in which angels long to gaze upon. We have it. It's been given to us. Wonderful. As we hear this again, we're to be filled with hope, hope that fills our imaginations with the, with the grandeur of it, and, and hope that, that fills us with, with confidence and, and, and confidence in, in the sureness of it. This is true. This is real, but it's true and real, not because of the, 
the strength of your hope. Not based on how strongly you hope in it, but based on the faithfulness of God to keep you for the day and to keep it for you for the day. He bought the inheritance for us. He will bring the inheritance to us. And until then, He keeps it for us and He keeps us for it. Our hope is based not on ourselves, not on the strength of our own hope, but on the the faithfulness of God, on the promises of God. So we're meant to see that God is faithfully, sovereignly causing our, our past and our future and our present to all work for His glory, but His glory in bringing us imperishable joy, undefiled joy, unstained joy, undefiled pleasure, unfading glory in the glory of King Jesus. Nothing, no, no trial, no enemy, no politician, no spouse, no boss, no illness can no, no, no suffering, even suffering that's the result of your sin. Nothing can separate you from this grand purpose of God, from this storyline. He uses it all to this end. This is good news. And the way that he does this, if we're to accurately and, and helpfully preach this to ourselves then we are, to, we are to go back and, and look at the cross and, 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 and think about what Christ has won for us at the cross and then think about the resurrection and think about the fact that He has won a future reward for us in His resurrection, in His new life. And so we should immediately, when we look back to the cross, preach the gospel to ourselves, we should immediately be pointed forward to this, this coming reward. We're meant to, we're meant to stop and Simply and patiently reflect on these truths. First Peter 1. And as we do this, we see that in the gospel storyline, faith and hope and holiness take us there. Faith and hope and holiness are, in a sense, a means to another greater end. They are not ends in themselves. God did not save us just to shape us up. He saved us to give us a great reward. And the means by which He takes us to that reward is faith and hope resulting in holiness, resulting in endurance until that day. So back to the therefore of verse 13. If you are seeking to grow in some some area of holiness in your own characteristic flesh, but you find that there's no, no gas in the tank. <clears throat> this is the gas. This is part of your motivation. The future day of grace brought to us by Jesus himself. The cross of the gospel and the empty tomb of the gospel point us forward to the end, the reward of the gospel. This too is part of the good news. And it's meant to fill us with hope. So a good indication that your tank is being filled is, verse 8 and 9, that you feel joy, that you feel love for God and a a joy that that struggles for words. Your tank for the hard work of holiness is is filling up when your imagination begins to fill with with the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I don't know for sure, but I, I think this is the primary reason why God gave us the capacity to imagine. That our minds would fixate on things which we cannot see, not yet. 
But we so often struggle at this point. Our imaginations are emaciated, filled with other things. And this, this leads us to the second point, the second path to holiness. Respond to the gospel storyline with readiness, fixing your mind on the superior hope of the inheritance. Respond to the gospel storyline with readiness, fixing your mind on the superior hope of the inheritance. I get the word readiness from verse 13, the first phrase, which is translated um, in several different ways depending on the version you have in front of you. But Peter is using a peculiar and very specific phrase from the Old Testament. Your Bible may have a footnote. Mine reads, girding up the loins of your mind. An odd little phrase. It seems best to understand Peter to be thinking back to God's instruction to the people of Israel for how they were to commemorate the Passover, their salvation from Egypt. Exodus 12 says that they were to roast a lamb and eat it. And verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, blood from the lamb put on the doorpost, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They were to gird up their loins. They were literally, the phrase means, you know, in those days you would wear a long dress-like garment, men too. And in order to gird up your loins, That meant to gather up all the stuff around you and tie it between your legs, probably using your belt, cinch it up. That would free your legs for action, for moving, for leaving, for getting out. They were to gird up their loins by becoming ready, by assuming a stance of readiness, readiness for the day of the Lord's salvation and judgment. Peter pulls this forward as a picture of how we should respond to the gospel storyline. In the same way, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. We're to assume a stance in our minds of readiness, or as the ESV translates it, prepare our minds for action. But it's not our action that we're preparing for. It's God's action, God coming for us, God blessing us with this future grace. We're to live in continual readiness to receive his inheritance. So it's from this stance then that we are able to, back back to 1 Peter 1 verse 13, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From this stance of expectation, we are to continually, it's an ongoing command, continually fix our hope on the inheritance. We're to fixate on the grace that he will bring us in the future. Now, at this point, I think we start to feel a little disconnect. We start to say, yes, yes, but then we're kind of wondering on the inside, if you're like me, even, what does this even mean in real life? Like, how does this actually play out? 
Yes, yes, set my hope fully. And then we leave and we have a nice meal in our warm houses with our friends around us and uh, enjoy our choice of entertainment tonight. And, and we are awash in blessing. We are awash in undeserved favor today. We are awash in grace. So, the problem is that we are prone in our flesh to set our hope in these things. These things are not the problem. The problem is that we are prone in the ignorance of our passions to set our hope in these things. We just do it. Our problem is that we set our hope in things which are perishable and which are sometimes defiled and which will certainly fade. The possessing them and the enjoying them is not the problem. Hoping in them is the problem. We don't say we hope in them, but our hopes are revealed by our response when these things are lost or broken or threatened or stolen. Our hopes are revealed by our anger, by our sadness, by our anxieties when the thing that we hope in might be taken away. So track your emotions. You'll get a good read on where your hopes really lie. We need to reflect on this because wealth is the water that we swim in. Interestingly, uh, recently when I asked the men at our boot camp, our recent boot camp, which tense of the gospel do we tend to major in and which tense of the gospel do we ignore? Do we not think about much at all? And the answer was, roundly, we, yeah, we, have, we always look back. We look back to his mercy and his grace, but rarely do we look forward. Rarely do we look forward to his bringing us heaven. When I ask that question in Ukraine, I get overwhelmingly the opposite answer. Because for them, nothing in the world goes right. (laughs) Therefore, they have no expectation of anything in this world going right. (laughs) Heaven for them is the future. For us, heaven is already here. We, we already have a superior hope. It's right in front of us. Our homes, in our homes, on our bodies, it's here. And yet a superior hope is what we need. One massive reason we do not grow in holiness is that we live only for the hope that we find right here. We live for this. The passions of our former ignorance lie closer than we realize. And if we are to really grow, if we are to be really changed down deep, we need a superior hope that is massive enough that it, that it makes saying no to, to gluttony or, or pornography or overspending logical, reasonable, of course. That's what we need. So what does it look like then to continually set our hope fully on the hope that's yet to be revealed when we are surrounded by so many lesser hopes to enjoy? Well, I, I cannot trace out all the possible variations of this, and God works in a thousand different ways to change us. But, but here is one thought. To take the very things that we are prone to hope in and employ them in the service of the superior hope. This is what I mean. Take the sin of gluttony. Of course, no one has committed this in the last 72 hours. 
Um, Let the act of of sitting down with friends and family and and eating a meal be a cue to you, Uh, a a cue that there is a superior hope, that that there is something better than this coming, that I I ought not to put my hope in this, but, but there is something superior that is yet still to come that Christ will bring me. And then, and then you remember, oh yes, Peter said that the word is imperishable. So, so, so you let the imperishable word tell you, is there something about my, my future hope and a meal? Oh yes. Revelation 19 tells us that there is coming a day when we will sit with Jesus and as we just sung, we will feast with him in the house of Zion. We will truly then on that day feast. This picture, filling your imagination, can then free you, free you from trying to find satisfaction in a meal here and now, in food here and now. But paradoxically, it would also free you to actually enjoy the meal in front of you the way it was meant to be enjoyed. Thankful to the Lord, not trying to find true soul satiation from it. Not enjoying it in a gluttonous way because you'll be looking forward to a better feast to come. But note what what changes you in this scenario. It it begins perhaps by coming to the realization and, and perhaps by trial or trouble that your relationship to food or or sex or money or people or work or possessions or whatever has become defiled, stained in some way perishable, fading. So you remember who you are. You remember that you are a reborn child of God. You, you, you start there. You start with the cross. You remember and, and, and then you receive mercy from the cross, say, for the sin of gluttony. Oh, yes. You confess it and you receive mercy. And then you remember when you are. You locate yourself in the gospel storyline after the cross, but still awaiting the inheritance. You remember that heaven is still to come, that there is a superior satisfaction coming. And then you make the volitional choice to look forward to Jesus, to the reward that he brings. And by faith, you exert effort to fix your hope there on him. And and, and right there, Right in that moment, that's where you are changed. All change goes through Christ. All change goes through looking at Jesus. God will use other things. He will use troubles. He will use trials. But the thing that he will use most is his spirit working through his imperishable word to show you Jesus. And all of the things around us, they are all cues to us that there is a superior hope coming. There is something superior to the thing before us. Yes, enjoy the thing before you, but enjoy it hoping in the superior that is yet still to come, that Jesus will bring you. So by faith, you you exert effort to to fix your hope on Jesus. You you look at the, I could say the past tense Jesus (laughs) for mercy. And you look to the future tense Jesus in hope. 
right there you're changed. It is right there that as you receive his mercy and his promises that you are empowered to say no to the second slice of pumpkin pie. (laughs) To use but one example. Right there you are empowered to move out of yourself, out of your own desires, to satisfy yourself, and instead, verse 22, to love others from a sincere heart. To have a sincere brotherly love. At the sight of Jesus, our hearts are filled with hope and there is much less room for the passions that would previously rule over us. So it takes effort to set our hope on his future grace. Effort of mind and imagination and and opening up the word. But we have a whole world of pointers before us pointing us to the hope that he brings us. As one old theologian said, all the world is a stage upon which God's glory is displayed. Trees, sex, Krispy Kremes, a dollar bill, the semi-innocence of a toddler, the twinkle in the eye of a senior saint, they all serve as God's cues to us that we would trace a path forward to the coming grace. Now, we must be about this because otherwise we are prone to slouch and slough and slink our way back to the waiting arms of our flesh. The reason we're dull and lacking in imagination is not that we're smart enough to trace this out. That's not the problem. God has given you an imagination. He's given you a mind. That's not the issue. The reason we're dull and lacking is because we gorge ourselves on the perishable. We're awash in the perishable. In part because we just listen to our own thoughts. And our own thoughts are perishing. But also because we listen to others' perishable thoughts through media, of course. But only an imperishable media can fill our minds with a, with a vision of this imperishable reward that is yet still to come. Only, verse 23, if we, if we nurture the imperishable seed of the gospel planted within us, will we be filled with the fruit of hope. We're not filled with the hope of heaven because we watch too much TV or we read too much news, not enough of the good news. So we need to be motivated to not just love our, this, this coming day, but to hate what threatens our reward, to hate what gets in the way. And this leads us to the third path that Peter lays out for us. We said first we need to, to locate ourselves in the, in the gospel story and then we need to fix our minds on the future grace of the gospel. But lastly, number three, we must respond to the gospel storyline with sobriety, remembering God's impartial judgment. Respond to the gospel storyline with sobriety, remembering God's impartial judgment. With all the focus on joy and hope, it may be uh, surprising here that, that Peter moves to the subject of fear. But Peter is thinking about the Exodus, which brought salvation to God's people, but also judgment. Judgment on the firstborn of Egypt. And it brought judgment on every sacrificial lamb that was slain for the sins of God's people. God showed no partiality on that day. The firstborn of Egypt were slain, but wherever there was blood on the doorpost, the angel passed. And the day of the Lord will bring not only his imperishable inheritance, but it will also bring his impartial judgment on the world. 
on everything that's perishable. So again, we must hear this and we need to feel the weight of it. On the day of Christ's return, the Father will bring judgment and He will judge impartially according to each one's deeds, Peter says in, uh, in verse 17. All our conduct will be judged and all our deeds will come up short. This is why Peter mentions being sober-minded in verse 13. This is sobering. So in order to inherit the imperishable, there will need to be an imperishable sacrifice. So on that day, God will look for blood on the doorpost. He will look for evidence of faith and hope in the precious blood of the Lamb. The evidence will be shown in our conduct, the evidence of faith, by a holiness of life. So God gives us another motivation here, the fear of the Lord. So then the only right response is sober fear. But this is, this is fear that's born out of faith and hope, faith in His promises. The fear of God without faith and hope runs from God because there is only judgment. But the fear of the Lord with faith and hope sees God's judgment, but it also sees the precious sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And so this fear runs to God, even though He is the judge, because of the faith, because of faith in the Son's sacrifice. So Christian, on that day, you will have an imperishable, an imperishable refuge to run to, one that perfectly matches the Father's holy requirement the requirement to receive this imperishable reward. Peter says in verse 20 that God has planned this for you and I from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, and He waited for you to bring it to you so that you would experience this reward. So we must see again that it's, it's in the sight of Jesus that, that we are changed, that we are changed to live holy lives today. For when we see Him as our refuge from the Father's future wrath, we, we still fear that wrath. But we love God at the same time because He has given us this refuge. We love Him for it. And we develop the capacity to live before Him in both fear and love at the same time. Fear of His coming judgment, but love because He has given us a sure refuge from it. And this fear and love conspire together to produce in us the most important thing, a hatred, a hatred of our sin. The fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord are the hatred of evil. So when this fear and this love are operating in us, we are now filling up our tank with the fuel that we need for holiness. We now have the fuel we need to live in holiness in every area of our life. We are filling up with the power we need to say no to our ignorant passions and yes to the love of others. It is the good life, a life of living hope, which is the same thing as a life of holiness. That holiness comes from setting our eyes on the one who lives, who lives for us. It comes from setting our minds on His coming reward to us by His resurrection and His coming refuge to us. And then it comes from pursuing holiness in all of life, in every area of life. 
how we do our work, how we pay our taxes, how we talk to our wives, how we handle our possessions. But not by our own strength, but on the power of his imperishable life given to us by his imperishable word, through his imperishable word. So may he fill us with his spirit that we would seek the imperishable by means of the imperishable, by means of his imperishable life given to us through his imperishable word. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we need your spirit to come and do this in us. None of this works without your power. You will get all the glory from our holiness because you will be seen to have been the giver of the faith and the giver of the hope, the object of the faith and the object of the hope. So please work in us by your spirit to fix the eyes of our minds on you. Please lift us from the the shallow, lesser hopes that we have before us. Please lift up our eyes and show us Christ. Show us Christ in all of life. Give us grace to to trace a path from from a meal or, or swaddling a baby or a conversation with a spouse or driving a car to you, Jesus, to the future hope that you bring us. Cause your imperishable word to truly come alive in us. You say it is alive in here, and it is. Make it alive in us in this way. Fill our imaginations. Fill us with hope. Do this, we pray, for your glory, but that we would truly experience life, real life. Thank you. Thank you that you are such a generous, generous Father to us. Your grace to us is lavish. It was lavish on the cross. It will be lavish on that day when you bring the inheritance to us. And it is lavish in keeping us for that day. We praise you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.